and welcome to None of My Business. I'm Michael Jackett. This is a business podcast, but mainly it's about people and their business. It's driven by my own curiosity and passion for learning from every conversation. David Knopf, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. Mate, it's been a while. As, uh, as I, f- I feel like I say that with a few of the people that I've interviewed lately. It's been a while since I've spoken to you, but that's part of what I'm doing this for because it's a great way to catch up and check in with people I haven't spoken to in a long time. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, certainly, I think we ran into each other in South Melbourne not too long before I came down here. But, we uh, did. It does yeah. feel like a different world uh, ago as well. Yeah, totally. Um, so... Uh, before we get into where you are and what you're doing, um, you, I just wanted to get a, just a bit of like, you know, a bit of an insight into what drives you and, you know, because I think it'll, it'll come to, um, you know, it'll come to that when you explain what you've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years. But, um, and then if you look at, I look at your LinkedIn briefly and I intentionally don't go into too much um, investigation into what you've been doing because I want to chat about it. But what is your, what gives you your drive? Like, what, where do you get your drive for what you do and what you've done over the last however many years? Well, as as you said, it will link pretty well into to what I've done with most of my career, what I'm doing now. Um, really, I've thought about this a few times. It's really trying to be part of history and the world and everything and current events that's driven me to the career choices I've made and to the, the spot I'm in now, um, rather than just going, oh, I want to be an accountant or a lawyer. I've always just seen world events or global events or something that I want to be part of that. And then yeah. trying to find and make the career choices to get into that. Um, and that's meant I've changed and moved around a few times, but um, it certainly keeps it a lot more interesting as well than, than getting mm. stuck with, oh yeah, I, I do this one thing and, uh, and then you, you just keep doing that. Yeah, I love that. I, um, if anything, it's something that I've landed on more recently than you know, in my entire career or, or life lately is around that impact and you know having more and and it being more about what you're giving to the world rather than what you're receiving you know and that it's all interconnected in some way i think it's just a matter of how you find it and you know how it presents itself to um so and you may not have an answer to this but complete this sentence if you really really knew me you would know that Oh, that's a tough question. You'd know that I can't really sit still um, would be what most people would say. Or that right. I, I actually, the other one would be that um, there's, there's a lot of layers and depths to, to some of the things that, uh, that I do that would, would surprise people. Great. I love that. All right, mate, let's, uh, let's not tease anyone any longer about what you're doing and where you are. So can you just give me a quick overview of where you're currently geographically and and what you're doing there all right so i'm currently the station leader at davis station antarctica one of australia's uh, three continental stations down here it's about uh 4900 kilometers uh directly from hobart takes about two weeks to sail here in a ship uh we don't have any aviation access at the moment so you know but if it wasn't for zoom calls and, and telephones these days we'd be completely cut off from the rest of the world and that's the, the world we live in down here it's a beautiful sunny day though about minus 25 outside um but with an extreme uv factor so i did manage to get myself a little bit sunburnt yesterday as well which is uh rare down here yeah right well that 
That makes our uh, eight degrees sound pretty, pretty bloody nice, actually. Um, great. So I think I've really been looking forward to chatting to you, actually, because, um, you know, this, the, the idea of this podcast is, um, you know, having one, like I, like I said to you uh, when I opened, is around just having conversations with people that I haven't connected with in a long time and, and but even deeper than that it's about having more meaningful conversations with people that generally you don't get the opportunity to like you and I were a classic one we bumped into each other in South Melbourne I was with a group of people we'd just done something and we were there for a drink you were with someone and you know like you just don't get those opportunities to really say what are you doing and why are you doing it and where have you been for the last 10 years and what's that been like for you um and so I think that you're you know like what you've what you've done is you know, is what, what, I, what I've seen that you've been doing through your you know, Instagram and your photography and bits and pieces like that has been really interesting. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting your, your take on it and, and why you've done it. Um, but w w when you left, we obviously, and then another bit of context for those that are listening is we went to school together. Um, and, you know, your, your path from school has clearly taken a specific direction. Um, and, probably one that most don't take but what can you just talk to me a little bit around those t that time of when we were leaving school and you know what you wanted to do versus what you ended up doing or the path that you went down yeah for sure and certainly that's something that if, if you if I went back and asked myself or spoke to my like 18 year old um, Dave and said hey you know what, what do you where do you want to end up um, you know 20 years from now or what do you see yourself doing in life um, I probably wouldn't have said I would end up where I am right now. But having said that, if I went back and spoke to that young teenage me, um, his response would be like, wow, that's, um, that's not what I expected, but that sounds pretty interesting. Sign yeah. me up. I'll, uh, I'll definitely do the same thing again. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when I left school, I didn't really have much of a plan as to what I wanted to, to do. I, I did pretty well at school. I, I kept my options open, which is, the best advice I ever got from um, my older brother and family to, to do as many subjects as you can that give you the options to do whatever you want at uni and then down the track. So I started out, went to the Monash to do engineering arts. Um, a year or two, probably a year into that, I realised that engineering, whilst interesting, wasn't really going to be a career that I wanted to go into. I, was, I wasn't very inspired by any of the career expos or the companies we had engagement with other than I, I do think like an engineer though, I think and at times um, I, have a, I have a good interest in that stuff, but I, I dropped out of engineering and joined the army reserve at the same time as well. And like, right, if I finished my arts degree, I've got a bachelor's degree and that'll do. And then the army reserve was just a lot more interesting than uni. And that sort of led to a few things. I started prioritizing that over uni and over other jobs. And it was a great part-time job um, for a while. And then all of a sudden, uh, an opportunity came up to, to take a full-time contract for a year or so um, and go over to the Solomon Islands as a platoon commander, which was a great opportunity. I think it was only about 23, 24 at the time um, as a young lieutenant and uh, as part of a peacekeeping mission over there for, for about six months. Um, and then when I got back from that, that was my first taste of real international relations on, on the world scale, even though it was only just in Australia's back door. Um, and, and straight away, I knew that was a career that I wanted to pursue, um, but not necessarily in uh, a spotty uniform. So came back from that deployment, um, spent a little Can bit longer just, in on full-time service. 
Yeah. Sorry, just I, I just want no, I'd, I'd yeah. love to just get a bit of your the the insight around your mentality and and or the or the you know the th- the thinking around you know going one prioritizing the army reserve stuff you know like was it and I think you said it like it was just more it was just more fun probably it was more interesting it it presented you know different experiences is what I think I interpreted from what you just said but you know, doing the reserve work, and maybe this is, you know, you can give a bit of insight into this, and versus going and doing some sort of deployment, it seemed like two very different things, you know, was there was there a decision that needed to be made, like with your family, did you, did your family get involved in that decision, because, you know, we're still only, what, 18, 20, 21, 22 at that stage, what, how old were you? Uh, so, by the time I deployed, I think I was about 23 or so, um, Look, it was really different. So most people think you, you know, join the Army Reserve and, and you just do a few things on weekends. And it's certainly now, these days, they help out with like bushfires and, and domestic um, security stuff as well. So it, it is quite dynamic. But then in Australia, they don't really go overseas that much. So that was a big change and a big difference to kind of go, oh, hey, all of a sudden, um, this sort of one weekend a month from Tuesday nights um, every now and then is now mm-hmm. like, oh, hey, hang on a minute. We're, we're flying up to Townsville. You got your pre-deployment training. Um, we're at you know, out, out in the field doing a lot of really, really interesting training um, before we deployed. And then, you know, so we, we did a lot of live training with um, riot, riot right. gear and Molotov cocktails and smoke grenades and, and all sorts of stuff that, you know, boys tend to love a bit more and, and women, <laughs> women as well. Yeah. Everyone loves a bit of uh, things that go bang. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, you're overseas and you're in, in harm's way. Like it, it still was a peacekeeping operation. So it wasn't overly dangerous, but we had a few things that, that happened over there. And, and for me, it was a really unique experience as I was one of the younger guys in the platoon as the, the boss. And there was, um, you know, guys that had been on, on multiple other, other deployments. So plenty of guys that had been to East Timor a few years before that, some that had been to Iraq, um, which at the time was the sort of Iraq War One, mm. um, and then or Iraq War Two, or whichever one we're up to, um, and that had its own challenges and gave me a really different perspective on, on a lot of people that I'd have never really had much to do with um, mm-hmm. if I'd followed my traditional career path or stayed in Melbourne and, and worked at a, a law firm or something like the, the rest of my family did. Um, would have never really met those people, seen those things, and seen how. Um, a small, tiny island nation lives and works and how remarkable some of the people are over there. I remember once we were on Solomon Islands is split into two major islands at Guadalcanal and, and Malaita. And then we we're over on Malaita, this remote island in this tiny little community. And all of a sudden this bloke came up and spoke really good English, which was kind of rare. And um, I'm like, oh, great. Well, you know, what do you do here? He's like, I'm the village chief for this area. And I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, what are your issues? What are your dramas? He's like, well, you know, uh, trying to get my hydropon- uh, hydro um, power set up really working so we can get off diesel because there's too many diesel generators in the world that's ruining the planet. And I'm like, like, I'm sorry, but like, how are you that wrapped up in the climate change issue? This is back in 2007. Yeah. And uh, he had been to University of Queensland. He'd studied this stuff and it was his passion because he just, and from his point of view, it was he was sick of his village just having diesel fumes all the time. Mm-hmm. And he's like, there's got to be a cleaner way to power our village. And he was, and they've obviously they got a huge amount of rainfall in the tropics. And this, this one little village chief was just hell bent on doing his bit to, to clean up his village. And I'm like, geez, if we could all just be a little bit more like this one little guy um, and take it so seriously, we'd be in a, a lot better place and we wouldn't have some of the problems we have today. And that was, totally, yeah. yeah, you'd have never, I'd have never had the chance to meet that guy uh, in any other 
job yeah. than, than over there doing what I was doing. So I'm really interested in, in perspectives at the moment and, and people's, the different perspectives people get through experiences, different experiences within their career. And I think, again, you're going to have a, an interesting perspective on, on from what you've done. But what sort of things are you, are you, and if you can think back to that time when you're sort of starting to get more heavily involved with, you know, Defence Force and, and you know, and I assume the, the Australian government and, and those, those departments and the people that run those departments. And, you know, like, can you, can you think back to that time and, you know, those sort of feelings and perspectives you start to get about, you know, like, like that example, you know, you just, you just, most people wouldn't really know what goes on within your world. Um, you know, was, is there any standout things that you're like, oh, that's a, that's an interesting learning about how the world works a bit, you know? I think, yeah, definitely. And that's, I've had some great opportunities, um, you know, working pretty closely with some uh, members of parliament and everything overseas. And that's something that not a lot of people see in, in they don't really see politicians in their real lives. And, mm. and certainly it's a great opportunity as well. Like more so these days when people start writing books about things you've been involved in, you really get to sit there as an expert and go through it. Like, that's not what happened. He didn't do that. That's bullshit. <laughs> that, that's, you know, that's wrong. I'm not going to swear on this, but um, yeah, you know, that, that's kind of really interesting to, to look back on things and see, and it's always through someone's perspective. And I'm, I'm, I don't really like that. There's a bit of a culture amongst that of, of shunning people that have written their story or, or told their account of it. And, you know, if it's, it is blatant lies, they should be called out. But mm. uh, a lot of the time it's just like, Oh, that's just how they saw it. And that's what their role was. But um, I found the, the, the chance to work with politicians behind closed doors, so to speak, really gives you a different um, respect for how hard they work. I remember mm. some of the stuff around, um, when Julie Bishop was a foreign minister. So I worked at foreign affairs and trade for 10 years after I was in the army. And, um, you know, she should be up at 5am every morning. And we used to at the different embassies while she was traveling, um, try and work out who would go for a jog with her in the mornings. You know, she's you know, um, a bit older than I am and a bit older than the average age of the embassy workers. And, mm. and you having to do this 5k run in the morning whilst briefing her on world events and, and the events in that country. And then straight to meetings all day and they're up till midnight taking phone calls. And, wow. and then, and you know, they take one day off and there's a photo of them playing golf. And it's like, you know, minister plays golf while the world <laughs> falls apart. And you, you kind of, you have this respect and you can see how exhausted they are from it. And uh, really we don't, give them the credit they deserve for what they they do um yeah, and that, that's been an interesting part of the part of the job so okay so just if if you can give me a bit of a snapshot so you just after your deployments and on I, I don't know how that kind of period in your career came to an end or or whether it just transitioned but what is, what's the sort of the next key sort of steps up to where you are now yeah, so after I got back from that trip, I, I knew I wanted to be part of international relations, but didn't really want to stay in uniform. So, and, and whilst we were over in the Solomons, had started working with the, the Australian High Commission over there, we were doing some things and, and I realised, okay, there's a job in diplomacy here, um, but I'll need a degree. So I went back, finished my arts degree with a uh, politics and history major, then picked up a job with foreign affairs and trade, working uh, again in Pacific Island relations. So I had that on the ground experience and that, that segued quite well into to foreign affairs. Um, and from there, uh, so I was gonna have to take a radio call for one second. If we Mate, can pause. You, That's you right. go for it. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Damo. Over.
Yeah, copy that. Let's go next call, 1330. Bells of Davis, standing by. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Um, so, yeah, moved up to Canberra and then started to... You, you have to spend a couple of years um, going around the traps, learning about how uh, government bureaucracy works and how the foreign service works and everything as well. And then from there, picked up a position at the Australian High Commission in Pakistan. So went over there for reference just after we'd captured, or just after bin Laden had been killed. So that happened in May 2011. I went over at the end of that year, was there for three and a half um, or so years uh, as the, the war in Afghanistan, which was next door, but intrinsically linked to, to the whole situation in Pakistan and really watched that play out from a front row seat um, next door, but then watching how closely and all the other stuff that was still happening inside of Pakistan in and around that conflict, um, whilst trying to work with the Pakistani government on radicalization and uh, counterterrorism policy, which was really tricky. Um, the relationship with Pakistan is, is you, know, you know, tense at, in the good times and, and non-existent in the bad times. And, and Australia had this unique opportunity that for the British and American um, and, and NATO embassies to work with the Pakistanis was, was clouded by what was happening in Afghanistan in a big way in their history was either colonial powers, um, all the, the global world police superpower. Mm. And uh, we'd walk into meetings and they'd be like, oh, the Australians, Ricky Ponting, ah, you know, you want to play talk, let's talk about cricket. And we used to call it like cricket diplomacy. It was great. And, and it, you know, of course, they all think you're your best mates with these guys. And so I ended up at the um, Pakistani cricket board annual dinner once representing the Australian embassy because <laughs> the ambassador didn't want to go. Yeah. So I'm sitting there at this thing, hanging out with all these. I used to hang out with Shoaib Akhtar and we'd have beers on weekends and, and Imran Khan, you know, before he was a really big politician he'd, he'd come to our parties and all this yeah. and i'm sitting there going i've never even met ricky ponting or shane warne and <laughs> and let alone being at dinner with them or, or hanging out having beers with them but all of a sudden somehow because i'm you know the australian um high commission commissioner yeah. i get to be on this table and, and it was great so that was that was so little, is that is that a bit of, of is that a bit of an insight into like how linked the the you know the defense force and the politics are and like is that does that is that a bit of an insight into anything there or is it just a circumstantial kind of example about what your way you were positioned and because there was a bit of you know political pull around what you were doing it was uh, it's hard to say i think a lot of it would come into the way of countries like pakistan and their their, their ruling class is kind of set up that once you're up on that level um it the kind of the playing field kind of evens out a bit whereas mm. In, in Australia and other countries, like it's it's not quite as linked. Whereas in in Pakistan, if you're an all powerful cricketer, all of a sudden you've got a really good chance to run for politics. You know, Imran yeah. Khan's come a, come a long way from a cricket captain. Um, yeah. Whereas in in Australia, I'm not saying that any of our cricketers couldn't transfer to politics, but they kind of never would. Yeah. Um, and you, you wouldn't see it, and it's they wouldn't really be. They're very different. Whereas in a lot of other countries, uh, it can kind of be a bit closer. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, all right. So, and and what happened? Where what, where'd you go after Pakistan? So after after Pakistan, um, I went to Istanbul for. Well, actually, that was the first. Uh, uh, immediately after Pakistan, I went to Antarctica for the first time. So a few mates of mine, we chartered a yacht out of South America. It was, it was an Australian yacht, but um, chartered that and sailed down to the peninsula for a month to do some uh, mountaineering and snowboarding 
uh, in Antarctica, which was absolutely just spectacular and, and gave me a taste for, um, for the continent and the wildlife and the environment down here. And, and that was another key moment of going, all right, cost a lot to go on that trip. It was very hard to organize. I'm like, how can I now position myself to get a job down there and get someone mm. to pay for, pay me to go and, and, and work in the, the world's most spectacular um, location. Yeah, and man. so that sort of started that. But after that, went to Istanbul for a year, um, chased, I was my girlfriend at the time, and she was working there with the United Nations um, Development Program in, in um, Turkey. And whilst we were there, we, we traveled around the region. I spent a lot of time in Europe, um, just enjoying myself for, for the year and, and helping do I did a lot of freelance photography stuff then as well, which doesn't pay very well or at all, but is, is quite interesting um, and helped me kind of, you know, see the world again and did some, some interesting activities while I was there. At one point I, I was kind of bored and, and looking for a, a sort of photo story to follow. And, and that was the time right when the, the Syrian refugee problem was, was really um, uh, propping up in, in Europe. So I decided to, to jump on a train with a bunch of Syrian refugees and go through uh, Serbia and Hungary and sort of follow their, their tail and get their side of it. And it was fascinating as well, because at, at the time, and Australia was very far removed from, from this and still is, that people are complaining about refugees coming to Australia and, and all this sort of stuff. And yet, yet when I did that and got on, a tra- got on the train and was chatting to the, the few blokes that, that spoke English there, and um, straight away, you, you just, I just asked them, okay, so why are you guys, why'd you leave Syria? And they're like, well, you know, I'm from Aleppo, he's from this, he's from Aleppo, he's from Damascus, we're all at university and uh, the university is completely destroyed, our homes are destroyed. Basically, everyone we know is either dead or now um, fighting in one of the two armies against each other. And you know, their wives and children had been you know, roped into other camps and there's a whole lot of other issues that go along with that. And, but the story that kind of made, made its way to the Australian press and, and different elements was that, oh, look at these men, they've left all their women behind and they're just trying to get to Germany or, or get a free ride to Australia. And it, and it couldn't have been further from the truth uh, in a lot of ways. And that was, that was an interesting time to kind of really see that firsthand and, and live and live and experience it. So in, as you sort of explain these like adventures that you've gone on and, you know, like they sound incredible, like how, how does, do you, are you thinking about your career or are you in a different mindset at that point? Are you in a bit of like a, I've been deployed in these regions and I've done these jobs and I've, you know, I've been it's sort of almost very project and, you know, project based or whatever it might be. Are you thinking, you know, about how do I, are you thinking about superannuation? Are you thinking about just those, you know, like those day to day things about longer term future plans around, you know, what, what you're going to do in, yeah, in the so- future? This almost comes back to your first, one of your first questions there of what would surprise people about me is that um, as footloose and fancy free as a lot of my career choices and, and lifestyle may seem, mm. um, I've got two, two investment properties in Melbourne, uh, one in Burnley, one in South Melbourne. Yeah. And I, I do a lot of trading um, on the, the stock exchange and everything as well. So do keep a good eye on my financial situation. And then yeah. having said that, um, the places I've been deployed and, and the places I've worked do pay fairly well for a whole yeah. range of reasons. Mm-hmm. And I'll always have a plan of what is the next thing and, and sort of be signed up to that. So the year in Turkey, 
I knew that at the end of that, I could go back to foreign affairs and trade, but I'd have to pay my penance. And my penance for that was spending a year in Iraq, mm. um, which I, I wanted to do as well, but it just helped that to take a job. And this is one of my other career mottos is it take, take the jobs that no one else wants because they'll, they'll always be more fascinating. And mm. one of the questions around um, diplomacy is, is people go, why don't you want to go work at the embassy in Paris or um, the high commission in London? And you just go, well, we get along with the British and the French. Like, we're, mm. How's that going to be interesting? You're going you're gonna to spend your whole time. If you did a three-year posting to the Australian High Commission in London, mm. you'd spend three years worrying about Brexit and trying to work out how we renegotiate the Australian deals with um, the British government around changes with Brexit. And you're like, yeah, mm. great. Whereas yeah. a posting to Baghdad, was, you, know, you get to fly around in Black Hawk helicopters. You kind of yeah. say that you're part of the effort to, to get rid of ISIS. You get to... You know, and you, you get a lot more delegated authority. So the more um, cutting edge or some more sort of pointy end, um, the work you're doing in international relations, the more it will be delegated to the field to actually make the decisions and the recommendations about, oh, actually, you know, we're looking at working with this particular group or this politician, he's dodgy as hell. And if the whole thing changes, he's going to end up on the other side. So the recommendation would actually be when you come and visit, and this is talking about, um, you know, planning for ministerial visits and everything into the country is you go, okay, when, when we sneak the prime minister into Iraq or the foreign minister, or whoever it is that we're sneaking in this week, um, you're going to have to meet these 20 people. You're going to talk about these particular things. And these are the real nitty gritty issues that you have to, to get right. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're doing a brief for the you know, prime minister to meet, um, meet Boris Johnson, you go like, oh, you know, it's Boris, you know, him pretty well from the, the TV. You've probably met him before anyway. Yeah in you go and the meeting happens. So it's, yeah. it's much more exciting to be in a, in a very dynamic um, conflict zone. Yeah, totally. So I feel like I've got, like I could ask you questions all day, but what do you think? I, I'm interested to know, you know, like knowing you at school and we weren't the best of mates, but you know, like we were in a, a school that was only a couple of hundred students, you know, year level, you know, so that we know, we know each other. Yep. We, you get, I get a, I get a sense for what you were like back at school and I can't help but feel like you're a very different person today based on your experiences, you know, like, like value based, yep. no, but, but based on your experiences. And I, I just want to, I just want to, I just wonder if you can talk to like the, the different periods in time where you, you, you had significant experiences that led to your, you know, the way you talk very confidently, the way that, you know, your knowledge around the world and your geography and, you know, and I'm, sh- and that's not even going into the sort of stuff that you would have done, you know, in terms of actual, you know, on the front lines or, you know, within combat. I don't even know if that's where you went, but, um, you know, like are there particular things and experiences that, that made you grow as a person and, and lead to, you, you know, think- what you're like today? Yeah, so that one of the uh, it's interesting you say because I, I I realised that in myself as well. Um, you know, at school I was I was pretty skinny. I wasn't overly sporty. I played a bit of basketball, but certainly I don't even think I was in the firsts. Um, well, I had one game in the first or something in, in mm. year twelve, and that was it. Um, and and so everyone looks at me now, and I weigh you know ninety eight kilos. I'm six foot three. And everyone goes, oh geez, you must have played AFL. I'm like, nah, I was a stick, mate. Like I I didn't. 
and I didn't consciously go like, oh, I need to get bigger. I just kind of ate more and started working out a bit after, after high school and, and put on a bit of bulk and, yeah. you know, now it's sort of the wrong kind of bulk, but uh, you can always <laughs> get back to, to better fitness. Um, yeah. And, and I think one of the defining things, like, cause my, I don't know if you remember, my old man died um, when I was in year, um, year eight at school mm. and that had a huge impact right. on myself and my family. And I think what, worked out really well in the long term for my, my older brother and younger sister as well is that three of us are really independent um and in growing up in a in a household where you've lost your father mum never remarried and you you kind of and we had you know male figures around and, and mum had a lot of support which was great but you kind of don't have a chance to be a recalcitrant pain in the ass teenager you just have to get on with it and go all right i need to focus on um study and i need to you know focus on the few mates that you have and you, you just just wasn't that wrapped up in in the whole high school experience i enjoyed mm. it I, I certainly keep in touch with with people from school and the school itself i've done a uh, online presentation for them recently for the old boys club and yeah and that, that. but um i kind of yeah just didn't have have the time or the, the focus to get too wrapped up in it all and you know mm. wanted to kind of get get out of school and and then see what else was out there mm. so I, again, I, I just, I, I just wonder what is it that, like, what are the, what are some, are there any sort of real fundamental experiences that you had that sort of changed you as a person going like, and the reason I say that is because you live and lived, have lived in extreme environments and, you know, done a pretty unique role in those environments for a long time. Are there, is there anything that you sort of think back and go, oh, that period really sort of changed my perspective on the world or it changed my perspective, my perspective on, you know, interacting with people or, or what I wanted from life? Um, I, I wouldn't say there's, there's specific moments. It's not like, oh, you know, when I was at the, the bombing of this particular thing that, that well, I had this life-changing moment. Um, mm. It was probably a cumulative set of experiences through um, – Certainly my, that first deployment over to the Solomon Isles as a platoon commander, it was my first one. I just remember, and I, I can still remember some of those, uh, the, the jobs that we did over there. Um, and again, they weren't full on combat situations or anything that, uh, that extreme, but you had the weight of, all right, I've got to get this right. And failure is not an option or, or half-assing it and phoning it in isn't an option either. You need to plan this mission um, to, to achieve success and that success is a achieving the objective but b everyone going home safely at the end um and yeah and that that was something that in terms of how to think and how to plan and how to make sure you've got everything covered and there is a plan and you're going to stick to it and then adapting it as well was something that came out of my whole military experience mm -hmm. and more so out of that trip um and then forward as, as well into the times in pakistan watching the watching how Western governments were, were just throwing money into this, this problem in Afghanistan and, and that whole region and where we ended up today, you know, we're still kind of stuck there and, but detaching yourself from it, not getting too you know, caught up in it and, and trying to think that you can change the world. You can certainly be part of the apparatus and the system that, that might be able to achieve what you want to see the world come out at the, the other side of it. But, um, it's 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 frustrating at the same time and that that probably led me to uh, away from the conflict zones and then back 
towards um, or to where I am now with the Antarctic program in terms of trying to do something good for humanity yeah. um, and see the nicer side of things and learn about and what I love about down here and, and looking out, out the window and everything at, at you know, a horizon of icebergs and you know, hopefully we'll see some penguins coming back after winter and everything is you just realize that we're a very small part of this planet. We've, d- we've done a good job of messing it up, but yeah. um, this planet would be very happy without us mm-hmm. and at, the wilderness down here is, is fascinating. That hasn't answered your question at all, but you know, it's good. No, 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 it podcast, has. I think, I, look, it's a, it's a good segue actually into what you're actually doing down there. And, you know, can you just talk to me about what, what is it, what's your day to day? Like, what is the, what is the head of the Antarctic division for devastation? What, what, what is, what does that entail? Well, you will not uh, find this surprising at all, but uh, before this, this call, I had a one hour zoom meeting or teams meeting um, with our um, couple of guys with the different stations. So that was kind of cool. Um, and now, um, you know, one of the contacts back in Kingston. So that part of my day-to-day life is pretty similar to yours. Yeah. Um, but the other side of it is that um, yesterday afternoon, I, I went out with uh, the station doctor, actually, a good, you know, good mate. And so we jumped in one of our over-snow vehicles, a tracked Haglund's um, car, sort of tank-looking thing, um, mm-hmm. drove down to the Sawstall Glacier, which is about 20 k's away from here, Spent the afternoon just sitting there listening to a glacier crack and uh, looking at the spectacular sort of colours and, and sunlight that you get reflecting off um, this uh, ancient, ancient glacier that just you know, goes for kilometres and, and kilometres and it's you know, 100 or so metres high from the sea level. And you were on frozen ocean as well. So you're driving along, there's about a metre thick of sea yeah. ice. So you're driving across the ocean in a, in a tank um, or tank looking thing. Yeah. And that's, you know, that, that's your Sunday afternoon down here. Mm. And then um, one of the other fascinating things last night, so we had uh, another Zoom meeting, which was great. We think the first ever Zoom meeting between international Antarctic stations right. um, to announce the winner of a, a few weeks ago, we'd filmed a five minute film for the Winter International Film Festival, which is an annual thing between Antarctic stations. Um, we filmed that, they had the awards ceremony last night from the French Italian station at Concordia. Um, they put on a great show and then we were lucky enough at the end of the night to, to take home the, the Oscar for best 48 hour film for the year, which was the first oh. time Davis had won. Yeah. Um, so celebrated that. And, and that was just, we, we, we put in a lot of work and the guy, the producer slash director slash chief writer, he, he was up till all hours, the, the using that 48 hours to its full extent to, mm. to make one of the best um, short films we've ever seen in that so that was yeah amazing. that was that was my weekend really amazing so what are your duties though like what are you as a job as the what does the job entail like what are you there to take care of or what or, you know i assume you're overseeing the whole division but what you know and maybe this is more an explanation about what the team does but what are you doing down there Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'm not in charge of the whole division. The director, Kim Ellis, if he listens to this podcast, uh, he's very much in charge of the division back in, in Kingston. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm just in, in, in charge of the station. And even then, in a modern context, I'm not in charge of the whole station. With um, you know, I'm just a custodian of and the, the on-the-ground supervisor of, of all things operations and, and day-to-day and week-to-week management of all the rostering um, yeah. and systems and everything down here. And certainly in the winter, our job is really keep the station running and prepared and operating for the busiest summer season. Um, and my job had a lot more to it during summer when I was the you know, responsible for the aviation shipping um, resupply and everything or ultimately responsible for all that. You've of course got um, direct reports who manage aviation and shipping and logistics and uh, field training and, and 
science programs and, and there's there's always the, the specialists and um supervisors there and mm -hmm. i have to oversee the coordination of all that between um the the limited resources making the decisions around um the weather briefs and weather situations and operational environment of like okay look we, i know you want to do that but the weather's not right we don't have the helicopter hours you know making sure that we don't run over the, the budget for how much you know aviation fuel uh we have so that there's enough left for different contingencies and, and planning the availability of what's the search and rescue response if we lose a helicopter in this location and working with the, the different team leaders there to make sure that everyone can achieve what they want to achieve um, safely and, and head home um, at the mm -hmm. end of the, the summer and then get us through the winter. Uh, it is very different between the role between summer and winter um, yeah. Yeah. as well though. So do you, do you feel like you're in an isolated environment? You know, I know that you're, you know, you're there with a whole lot of people and you know, you, that would be, I'm sure there's plenty of fun to be had too, but do you feel isolated down there? You, you, you do and you don't. So there's 24 of us here for winter. We had nearly a hundred people here in summer. So summer, oh. summer really felt like a, a small town and you could hang out with different people quite easily and kind mm. of get a good breath of fresh air of, oh, I've hung out with this guy too much. I might just go and hang out with these guys a bit more and mm. you know, deal with that um that sort of frustrations but in winter it's very hard to find any uh any time away from someone if they're, they're you know kind of getting your neck up a bit over something and it's it's hard it's a very small town mm. but i don't feel that isolated and uh, until you do and there's been a couple of moments when things have happened back home um either in, in my life or, or other expeditioners lives and then you just realize yep I can't get home and I mm. won't get home. We were supposed to come home in November. Um, mm. COVID has meant that we can't get the aviation assets onto the continent this year. So we won't go home until March. Mm. Um, that's the, and that moment when that news was, was dropped on us, um, really that, that led to a lot of people feeling like, well, I, I now feel more isolated than I was. They had yeah. the, the goalposts. They were starting to be able to see them at the end. And then all of a sudden we were another four months down here and, and that's, um, mm -hmm. yeah, going to be tough. It, it certainly won't be easy to get through that second summer, uh, yep. as well for and a myself and, and others. It's, yeah. Yeah. And the time of year, you know, Christmas, yeah. you know, January, February yeah. in, in Australia or in Melbourne, particularly, you know, like it's very, like, that's your holiday time. That's your, that's your getting around your friends and family time. Yeah. Or, or is it, I was having this chat, um, with a few people the other day that, um, Originally, they're missing out on 20. This is the best year to be in Antarctica by, yeah. by far. Yeah. I just can't believe that <laughs> that worked out so well. And especially as a Melbourneian, um, yeah. I think, you know, depending on where you're living, it may not be that bad. But as a Melbourneian right now, I am just in the best place to be. So sorry about that, the rest of yeah. Melbourne. Um, <laughs> and, and when it all started, we we're like, okay, you know, this will all be over by the time we get back in November and we, we can all do what we want for Christmas. But now, you know, we read the newspapers here every morning on the, on the iPads, you know, like Christmas is canceled. You know, you yeah. Aussies aren't going to be able to have Christmas um, interstate and, and all that. So you still be able to see your friends and family. And that would be, you know, better than being stuck here for a second winter, a uh, mm. second summer. But um, at the same time, I kind of resided myself to the fact that, uh, yep, waiting it out a bit longer, getting back in March has yeah. a much greater chance of me returning to the Australia that I left. Mm. Um, Granted, I'll have missed out on, on all of the things and I won't know how to do an elbow bump and all these funny things you guys are <laughs> yeah, doing. You, now, won't, but, you uh, won't have missed out on much, mate. Like it is yeah. <laughs> it is pretty dire down here, up here from you. Um, yeah, there's not a lot going on. 
So that's good. I mean, that's a good reframe. I love a reframe about, you know, how to, how to look at the positive out of, you know, what could be a negative. Um, mm. So what do you, what do you, in contrast or, you know, in addition to the rest of your career, what have you learned out of the Antarctic experience? I think with, with, um, with the Antarctic experience, it's shown me that uh, in a circumstance like this, where you are cut off from the rest of the world and, and the, the world's falling apart back home, mm. the way people will deal with that information um, and that helplessness and the human side of a lot of things um, and living and working together, I've learned a lot about human emotion and human and human resource management mm. um, that was really different from, from anything I'd ever done before. And, and they say that when you sign up to be a station leader, they're like, look, you'll be able to predict a lot of it, but it'll be tougher and different than you expect in yeah. terms of managing the people. And that is a hundred percent true. There's been issues that back home um, wouldn't be a problem. You, you, you get frustrated with someone at work or something doesn't go your way or a decision goes against you and you just go and catch up with your mates or you, you go hit the gym or you go for a walk or you, you do whatever it is. But the problem is down here, if, if you're not getting along with someone or you don't like your colleague, you're stuck with them and you're stuck with them for the year and you, you might live two rooms away from them. You see them at breakfast. You, that that gets, uh, gets to everyone and no one's immune from that. And if you, yeah, that, I've learned so much about the way you manage mm. situations um, and manage staff that, you know, for my other careers, you are very highly motivated, very over-educated individuals at, at, at foreign affairs and, and in, in that, and even in the army as well, everyone's really committed and focused on what they're doing. Um, not that people here aren't, but they've come from really different backgrounds to be here. So you have to sort of navigate this different thing of, oh, with this individual, I need to be quite direct and, and I need to give them specific feedback on that particular thing. But others will not take that well at all because they've just not had that experience of coming from an environment that does um, foster and have an environment of kind of feedback and, and perfection and, and, and chasing that. They'll be like, no, no, I'm happy to kind of be pretty average at this because I'm just here to look out the window and enjoy icebergs and penguins. They're not as focused on their job and it's hard to nuance yeah. the balance between the two of those. And you know, at times you go, you know what, maybe I am too focused on the job. Maybe it is about looking out the window and watching penguins because mm. no one, no one really takes a job in Antarctica just for the job you yeah. take it because you want to experience um, the last sort of wilderness on yeah. earth as well. That's different than any, any other uh, workplace mm. on earth. How much time do people generally do? Cause this is your second, is this your second year? Like what, how, what are you like your second time you've been down there? Or like how, how many, how long uh, do people generally spend down there? Yes, this is my third trip to Antarctica, um, but yeah. this is my first real job down here as, right. as stationary. So I was down on the peninsula once for a month. And then yeah. as part of the selection for this, they, they flew me to Casey Station for a couple of weeks um, yeah. early last year as, as a sort of final job interview sort of thing. Um, and then we got down here. We left Australia on October 25th. So we're, you know, and I started in Hobart um, pretty much a year ago. So I'm a year into my contract um, with the Antarctic program and that'll run through to returning sometime um, early next year. Yeah. And yeah, it's, yeah. Um, so, sorry. So how long do people generally spend down there? Like, is it, is oh, it something? Um, yeah. Yeah. So all of us, so winterers will generally do 12 months on the station. Um, and then 
the summer teams generally do yeah three or four months for summer yeah. you, you can have shorter shorter trips there was a few trips um down here last summer where specific science projects or or the director himself came down and visited and they were here for a shorter period of time but anything shorter than a, a month or two and you spend half your time waiting for flights or ships to line up because it, mm -hmm. we are really just at the the mercy of the weather um and environment down here that yes in theory on a spreadsheet you could fly in fly across fly into wilkins which is near casey station fly across here spend a couple of weeks here fly across to mawson fly back get on the ship go home mm. but you you get a we get blizzards that'll last for a week we could have high winds you get clouds fog snow sleet like all sorts of different weather events we, we uh, uh, the kind of a windy day for us is a category two or three cyclone back home. Um, but for us, that's just kind of like, oh, it's a bit windy today. So <laughs> you, you cannot um, really plan yeah. uh, anything shorter than a few months. So that, that sort of answers your question. But um, Yeah, good one. Yeah. Mate, so um, what's next? What, what do you see? Do you have plans beyond March? Do you, or are you kind of got a bit of an open, an open diary, an open calendar? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I do have my, my other job. So Foreign Affairs and Trade have, have um, put me on leave without pay, which is great. And they, they extended that as well with the um, extension. So I can go back to that job. But I'm starting to think now, though, though the best part about that job was that you got to fly around the world and, uh, and do all sorts of interesting stuff there. And that, that yeah. era might be on pause for a year or two um, or slash may never quite go back to what it was. So I'm starting to think like maybe, uh, maybe going back is not the best thing. But then at mm. the same time, 2021 might be a year to have a job. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll see how that one plays out. Um, other than that, I, I have uniquely benefited from the fact that everyone's stuck at home. I've started doing a range of um, online presentations to different organizations and companies on living and working down here and, and a few other topics. Um, so right. that's been a big win. I did plan to come back and do a few uh, public speaking engagements uh, after the Antarctic program. I didn't think I'd end up doing it during the program. Um, mm. But that's been a, a win out of 2020 for, for myself. And I'll hopefully follow up with that uh, next year with a few different uh, live events here and there. But yeah. uh, we'll see. I'm still up in the air as to exactly what I do next. Good one. Do you miss the action of the, you know, flying in heli? Oh, I suppose you're still getting a bit of it down there, but not quite the, not quite the same as in the military. Yeah, we did, we did during summer. Our helicopters at the moment are winterized, so they're they're in the shed. Um, we don't have any pilots in winter, so we can't fly them. Um, yeah, yeah, that was good during summer. No, there's nothing. But I, one of the best days, I, I think, probably of my life. Um, would and certainly the best day down here. Uh, we were out um, in the field, so driving around on, on on quad bikes. So one of the vehicles we use when the ice is quite thin, uh, we have to use smaller vehicles. So we we do ride quad bikes in the program here. Um, you know, I spent the day out driving along frozen fjords and, and ocean on, on quad bikes with a few others, looking at seals and penguins and an absolutely spectacularly blue sky day. Mm. Got to one of our remote field huts, which is about 30 k's north of the station. Parked up the bikes, um, went into the hut. Then I got the radio call like, oh yeah, there's your helicopter's on the way. We're going to pick you up. You need to go and do a, a sunset flight across a glacier to have a look for crevasses. Um, because we, you know, so we could think about where we might do some other field work. So I'm like, all right, sounds good. Yeah. So, you know, get quickly, get changed, park the quad bikes, walk up to the helipad, jump on a helicopter, get flown a hundred Ks away to a, a glacier to, to sort of fly down quite low, look along, look at the different landing areas, look at the crevasses and go, yeah, and absolutely just 
Amazing. Picture postcard um, sunset across Antarctica because it's it's easier to see crevasses in low sun angle um, environments. So you basically right. have to go out at sunset yeah. when you've got which in in Antarctica in summer is actually about eleven o'clock at night. So um, yeah. you don't even know what day it is half the time. And and that was just an absolute rock star day that you go. Amazing. You know what? This is the the best gig on on the planet um, awesome. when you're doing that. And mate, I've seen you do a bit of skydiving. Uh, I don't know, maybe on your Instagram or something like that. But you, you're doing solo, which has always been a dream of mine. I've always when I when I did it a couple of times, and I'm like, that's it. I'm getting the license to do this on my own. Never happened, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's um, yes. I love skydiving. Is the most addictive sport I've ever been involved in. I started um, you know, a decade ago. Um, I got my license in New Zealand when I was over there. I had a mate's wedding to go to and had a week between the bucks and the, the wedding. So just like, oh, I'll go learn how to skydive for a week. That'll be fun. <laughs> and then after that, just just got completely addicted. I've jumped all around the world. I've competed and, and done all sorts of stuff as well. Which yeah, been, right. It just, I, I, and the thing is, people look at skydiving. I love talking about this in terms of risk management. Everyone looks yeah. at skydivers and base jumpers and goes, oh, you're crazy. It's so dangerous and blah, 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 blah. There's a lot more to it than anyone thinks in terms of gear and preparation and training and understanding, like certainly for, for wingsuiting and wingsuit base. Uh, I haven't done wingsuit base. I've done wingsuiting uh, out of a plane and everything, but mm-hmm. really like the wingsuit base guys and, and others, you'll spend a lot of time learning about flight dynamics and glide ratios and distances and, um, you know, performance of your, your canopies and your wingsuits and, and that stuff as well that, yeah, like I said at the start, I, I do like to think like an engineer at times, and certainly skydiving is a place where my engineering passion gets gets a chance and gets a good workout um, to understand all of that um, yeah. and and getting the most. And, and you really feel like you're flying. There's the best way to see a city or anywhere is to just have a parachute above your head and yeah, off, off you fly into the into the sunset. Mate, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating <laughs> chat. I uh, yeah, I've loved it. I love listening. I feel like I could just keep shooting questions at you for another couple of hours, but we'll, uh, we've got to wrap it up. So thank you. No, Jarvis. Thanks very much for the chance. Um, stay safe back in Melbourne and yeah, look forward to catching up with you again uh, early next year, hopefully face to face or 1.5 metres away or something. Absolutely. Thanks, mate. <laughs>